This is Precepts Audio Message P.A. 502. Nathan C. Johnson, Bible Teacher. For all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in truth. Okay, the book of Psalms. And we are now on the third book. Book of Psalms, as I've discussed in studying the last two books, is divided into five books. And I believe that these five books are related to the five books of the law, or the Pentateuch, as they're often called, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So the first book of Psalms, therefore, is the Genesis book. Second book of Psalms is the Exodus book. And the third book is the Leviticus book, and so forth. Now, the names that we have in our Bibles for the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those are the Greek names of these books. And understand this is because in the early church, their uh, Bibles that they used were the Septuagint version, generally, of the Old Testament, which was the translation of the Old Testament into Greek. And in the New Testament, they used the translation of the New Testament into Latin, which is was called the Vulgate. So, of course, they didn't use the original of either one. Why they used the Greek of the Old Testament and then didn't use the original Greek of the New is kind of a head-scratcher, but that was the traditional Bibles of the church. So, therefore, our traditional names come from the Greek names. But the Hebrew names are the ones that God would have given them. And generally, these names are found in the first verse of the book. Now, Genesis in the Hebrew is the, the beginning. It's the book of the beginning of all God's works. It's the book of our fall from God and of the beginning of his work to reach out to us again, even in our sin, and to redeem us. Exodus is the book of names. It's the book of redemption. And the names emphasize both the name of God in the book and the people whom God names in the book, emphasize that these are the people whom God redeems. Leviticus is anti-called. So it's the book where God calls people to into his presence. It has to do with worship, and it has meticulous orders as to how worship was to be done in the tabernacle and later the, temp the temple. So once one is redeemed, one enters God's presence to worship. Numbers is in the wilderness, and it contains the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel. And it speaks to us of the wilderness of this world, that the redeemed, Exodus, who worship God, Leviticus, must pass through the wilderness of this world. So that's Numbers. Deuteronomy is the words, the book of the words, and that gives us the key to surviving in the world we live in. It's the words of God that sustain us, and that guide us in this world. So when we come to Leviticus, that is the book in Hebrew, and he called. Veikra is the Hebrew name, not Leviticus. It is the book relating to worship, as Bullinger puts it. Only those whom God thus calls does he seek to worship him. If we talk about the book of Leviticus, it starts out with the various types of offering by which the Israelites would approach God to worship. The burnt offering, the grain offering or meal offering, 
the peace offering or the fellowship offering, the sin offering and the trespass offering. It continues then to talk about the priesthood. It discusses their setting apart, their ministry. Then we have the sad failure of two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, and how they are cut out of the ministry. And so that emphasizes the need for proper priestly conduct. And that introduces the matter of when we come to God to worship, we need to worry about not just what we're going to do when we get there, but also what is our conduct of life that makes us worthy to come. So following this illustration of poor priestly conduct and the need for good priestly conduct, then come the laws of the clean and unclean foods. It comes the method of child dedication. Then the laws concerning leprosy. Next we have the laws regarding the Day of Atonement and the requirements for sacrifice on the atonement. Then we get into heavy laws that have to do with proper conduct. Laws regarding proper sexual conduct and forbidding incest and other sexual deviancies. Uh, the laws of prohibition, the different things that you're prohibited to do. And laws regarding defilement, various things that defile. Then there are laws of the priesthood, the laws regarding the feasts, uh, with the illustration of the half-Israelite who blasphemed God and was executed, which then illustrates the law against blasphemy. The Sabbath years and the Jubilee years are set forth, and the rules for slaves. A great chapter setting forth the blessings if they obey Jehovah, and the curses if they do not, then follows. And finally, the law of vows, which brings the book to an end. So you can see it has to do with worship and conduct. And when God calls us into his presence, those are the two questions. How do I worship him, both in religion, of course, in the case of Israel, and then in my conduct in my life? So the book of Leviticus has to do with worship, but not just in the aspect of religious activity, but also in the matter of personal conduct. The Israelites, by leading a different kind of life from the pagan nations around them, would worship Jehovah by their different and moral conduct. Now the same is true of worship today when we have no God-given religion to perform. Is that we worship God not just by things like prayer and Bible reading and study, but also by our personal conduct, our manner of life. The third book of Psalms has corresponding subject matter to the third book of the Bible. Instead of man, which is the central thought of the first book of Psalms, or the nation of Israel, which is the second, central thought of the second book of Psalms, the central thought in the third book of Psalms is the sanctuary, the temple, God's holy place, which is mentioned in nearly every psalm in this third book. So we follow the temple from its glory in the past, to its ruin, to its future glory in the kingdom. The tabernacle and the temple are set forth in this book of Psalms. Bullinger divides it into two sections. He divides it into the sanctuary in relation to man, which is Psalm 73 through 83, and then the sanctuary in relation to Jehovah himself in Psalms 84 through 89. In the first section, all the Psalms are Psalms of Asaph. In the second se section, most of the Psalms, the exceptions being 86 and 89, are Psalms of the sons of Korah. 
So as we study each individual psalm in the book of Psalms, we need to keep in mind that this is the book of the sanctuary, where God calls his people into his presence. From its position in the past, to its ruin, to its coming glorious future, God's tabernacle and his temple form the heart of his earthly religion and worship. Men approach Jehovah in his sanctuary, and Jehovah speaks to men from his sanctuary. Preparation and worthiness to come are important. And the sacrifices and praise that is offered when one actually does come and arrives. The perspective from in the sanctuary and in the presence of God can teach us much. Let's strive to learn more of God and his works and ways from this third book of Psalms. Yet, of course, for us today, we can praise God that while we don't have an earthly sanctuary or temple, we do have boldness and access with confidence by God's grace, as Ephesians Chapter 3 and verse 12 tells us that in whom that is in Christ, Jesus our Lord, we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. So we too have access into God's presence and our access comes not by following the law, but by being in Christ. So that is the third book of Psalms. Then we get to Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is a psalm that deals with the temptation that arises when men see the prosperity of the lawless and wicked men and are troubled because things seem to go so well with them. And they are tempted by this to perhaps compromise their own moral stand. Yet in the end of the psalm, this temptation is triumphantly overcome. Of course, we realize that if God were governing the earth, there would be no prosperity of the wicked. When God governs the earth, in his days, the righteous will flourish. This is a psalm of Asaph. Asaph means gatherer. This is the second of his psalms, the first being Psalm 50. And the remaining 11 of his 12 psalms are all in the third book of psalms. Asaph was the son of Berechiah. And he was one of the three chief musicians under David, often referenced in the psalms, dedicated to the chief musician. The other two were Heman and Jeduthun. We can see that in 1 Chronicles 25 and verse 1. Moreover, David and the captains of the host separated to the service of the sons of Asaph, and of Heman, and of Jeduthun, who should prophesy, speak God's words with harps, with psalteries, and with cymbals, and the number of the workmen according to their service was. So, Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun were the prophets who prophesied with music. In other words, the chief musicians. There is debate, and it must apply to each one of these psalms, if these songs are written by the original Asaph, who lived at the time of David, or by the family of his sons after him. In other words, the psalm of Asaph could be psalms of his descendants. Well, it's, it's hard to say in each individual psalm. It's a question. We do know that this was a psalm, Psalm 73, was a psalm that was sung in Israel. They were taught by this psalm, and we now can be taught by this psalm and learn from it as well. Psalm 73. Verse 1, Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. Or we can make this 
Sellers makes this, after all, God is good to Israel. And this, so this states at the beginning the conclusion of the psalm. So the psalmist, he's going to go through this dilemma he has about envying the wicked. But he is writing, of course, after he is over the dilemma. And so he states his conclusion at the beginning, which is that after all, God is good to Israel. So he assures us of this first before he goes on to talk about his dilemma. Bollinger says that this starting line links book three with the second book, whose theme was Israel. So truly, God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart, or to such who are of a, a pure, pure in heart, who are pure in heart. And this reminds me of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Where in verse 8, the Lord says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a pure, pure in heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. So he speaks to himself and said, his, As for him, as opposed to all of Israel, his, that his feet were almost gone. He had almost stumbled. He says, my feet stumbling had almost stumbled. So it's that repetition in Hebrew of the same word as a figure of speech. My feet stumbling had almost stumbled. My steps had well nigh slipped. So he had just about again slipped and fallen. How? He says, verse 3, for I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The foolish would be better the boasters, the arrogant. So I was envious of the arrogant boasters. And he was envious when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. So it's as if he is going through life and suddenly his attention is arrested by this fact. And so he contemplates it, he considers it, he puts his eyes upon it. And the same thing can happen today. The seeming success and prosperity and uh, comfort and continued wealth of the wicked can arrest the attention of God's people and lead them to doubt and dissatisfaction like it did the psalmist. Now the prosperity of the wicked, the Hebrew there is shalom, which you probably recognize as a common Hebrew greeting or salutation, it basically means sound and health and just general welfare. That the wicked were shalom. They basically had peace and prosperity or sound and health. Everything was good in their lives. And he noticed this. Verse 4, For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. There are no bands, or it says they are unfettered. Now regarding in their death, Rotherham points out it seems doubtful that the psalmist would consider their death as the very first thing. Particularly when he's about to talk about how healthy, just talked about how healthy they were, and is about to talk how strong they are, that he would then consider their death. Delich, a writer on the Psalms, pointed out that by regrouping the Hebrew letters, 
And remember that in ancient Hebrew, there were no vowels. Those have all been added since and added from memory of later times when Hebrew was being spoken less and less. So they wouldn't forget it. They added in the vowels. But by the time they did that, some of them probably had already been forgotten. So the original Hebrew had no vowels, and some ancient manuscripts didn't even have spaces between words. And so you, it was very difficult sometimes to even know where one word started and one ended. And with no vowels, that became even more difficult. So if we would regroup the Hebrew letters, this would read, For they are unfettered, sound and fat is their body. So that's probably what it means, not that they are unfettered in their death which would seem out of place in admiring the ungodly to speak first of the painlessness of their death, then talk about how healthy they are. So they are unfettered and sound and fat in body. And their strength, so their strength is firm. Verse 5, they are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. So they aren't in trouble. You'd think the wicked would get themselves in trouble, but they don't. Now this word trouble is actually first used of Joseph. We know some of Joseph's trouble that he got into. It speaks of things that are difficult or wearisome or miserable toil. They're not in trouble as other men. Where there is Enosh, mortal men. Other mortal men seem to have troubles, but these wicked, they don't. Everything seems to go smoothly for them. Neither are they plagued like other men. That means struck with disease. This time men is Adam, others of Adam's race. Others of Adam's race are sick, but these wicked seem to escape it. So this ends the first stanza of the psalm, where the psalmist describes his near fall due to his consideration of the prosperity of the wicked. Then we have... The second stanza, starting in verse 6. Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. So pride compasses them about as a chain. Now that, that doesn't mean a fetter, like they are chained by their pride, but it's more like a necklace, a decoration or an ornament. They wear pride like a necklace, like an ornament. Violence covereth them as a garment, or this could be envelops them. They're enveloped by violence. It covers them like their clothes. So the glittering picture of the happy lives of the wicked of the first stanza starts to sour as he, he considers their character. These people who seem to have it so good are this kind of people. Verse 7, their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. So their eyes stand out with fatness. That could also be protrude. Their eyes bug out with fatness, we might say. Now we think of fat in our society. We're always trying to not be fat and lose weight and so forth. We think of fat as a bad thing because we realize the unhealthy character of having too much of it, of course. But they looked at it as a sign of prosperity. After all, your typical man couldn't afford to be fat because he couldn't afford that much food. So someone who could afford enough food to be fat was prosperous. So a fat man is one who has all that a sensual man could possibly want. So their eyes protrude from their fatness. They just have so much 
everything the heart could desire. They have more than heart could wish or imagine. So they have the means to bring to pass basically whatever they imagine that they want. Bollinger says the imaginations of their heart overflow. So whatever they can imagine for themselves, they're able to get it. Verse 8, they are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. Sellers makes this, they mock and speak oppression wickedly. From their high place they speak. So corrupt there means more to mock or to jeer. So they mock or jeer and speak wickedly concerning oppression. Wicked there is the wickedly there is the Hebrew ra'ah, which I've suggested means more calamity than it does wickedness. They speak calamitously about oppression. So they mock and they just talk about bringing calamity and oppression on other people. They're open about it. Then they speak loftily, or they speak from on high. They look down on others. This is the high place of their pride. They're exalted in their own opinions. And so they speak freely of bringing calamity and oppression on other people because they think they are so above them, they don't hesitate from saying such things. Verse 9, They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. So they have set their mouth in the heavens, or they've set their mouth far above. These people imagine themselves as having reached the height of cleverness and prosperity. Or Bullinger suggests that they speak against God, and they think they have outwitted God, and proven themselves so superior that they don't even need to consider him. So that's how they set their mouth against the heavens. And then their tongue walketh through the earth. Or that could be marcheth through the earth. So their tongue marching through the earth, it's as if they're boldly proclaiming their philosophy as superior to that of all others, certainly including the righteous. Look how well we're doing with our ways. Certainly doing better than those foolish righteous people. So their tongue marches through the earth proclaiming the superiority of their ways. So this ends the second stanza of the psalm, which has to do with the effect their prosperity has on the wicked themselves. As the wicked are prosperous, this is the opinion they get of themselves and of their situation. Verse 10. Therefore his people return hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. Therefore his people return hither, or that should better be, therefore let his people turn to us. Bolger thinks this is what the wicked themselves say to God's people. And Rotherham thinks that this is what others who admire the wicked say and seek to convince his people with these words. But either way, these are spoken to his people by those who, either the wicked themselves or those who admire the wicked and would like to be like them. Is they say, let his people turn to them. Let his people start doing the same thing. And return here, 
or turn is repeated twice. In other words, turning let them turn here. In other words, turn to the way of the wicked to find similar prosperity. Stop wasting your time being righteous. Turn here so you can be like them. Then the waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. Or waters to the full. This is the promise that seeks to deceive God's people. And it's the promise that sometimes does deceive God's people, which is the promise that the life of wickedness will bring health and satisfaction. That you would be much happier if you were wicked. You would be much more satisfied. Everything would go well. Look at how happy these wicked people are, and you could be like that if you were just like them. Verse 11, And they say, How doth God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? So again, these are either the words of the wicked themselves or of the fatuous onlookers who come to this conclusion when they see their prosperity. So they, how, do, how doth El know? El is God the Almighty, God in his strength and power. So God might be powerful, but how does he know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Now we seem to hear such continually today. And of course, even more so today, perhaps, than in the time of Psalms, because in the time of Psalms, God could eventually step in. But today we know that God remains silent. And because he remains silent, men imagine that he's unaware what happens on earth, or doesn't care. Because he doesn't act to bring about the defeat of wickedness and the success of righteousness. And it's even as the Lord says in Psalm 50, in verse 21, These things hast thou done, and I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself. So when God keeps silent when the wicked act, they think that God must be just like them. He says, But I will reprove thee, and set them in order before thine eyes. So God promises, You might think this, but you don't realize someday I will reprove your actions, and I will set things in order before you. So what you thought about me was wrong. Most high here is Elyon, which is God as the possessor of heaven and earth, and so the dispenser of his blessings in the earth. But they say he doesn't know, he doesn't realize what we're doing, or he would have put a stop to it. Verse 12, Behold, they are the ungodly, who prosper in the world, they increase in riches. So, again, our psalmist is still considering them. He's looking at them, saying, These are the ungodly. The Hebrew is rasha, the lawless, those who don't live according to God's laws, who prosper in the world. This is the Hebrew olam. So these wicked are prospering in the present evil flow of things. And in Galatians 1 and verse 4, Paul speaks of Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil eon, which is the Greek for olam, according to the will of God our Father. So we live in this present evil olam. And so these wicked, they prosper in this olam. And they increase in riches. They don't seem to have to pay for their wickedness at all. 
There's the saying, honesty is the best policy, but these wicked don't seem to know it because they increase in riches in spite of their wickedness. Verse 13, Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. So as he sees and considers the prosperity of these wicked people, he starts to think this. He starts to think, Truly I have cleansed my heart in vain. I have purified my heart for nothing. So he's coming to this conclusion from the standpoint of admiring the outward glitter of the wealth and prosperity of the wicked. So he says, what good did it do me to purify my heart? And I've done that in vain and washed my hands in innocency, or cleansed, again, my hands. And literally in Hebrew, this is the palm of the hands. I've kept my palms of my hands clean. Now this probably refers to bribes, holding out the palm and it being filled with a bribe. And he says, I've kept my hands clean from bribes. I haven't taken bribes and corruption money. But these wicked have done it, and they've gained wealth from doing it. Far from not getting away from it, they've gained much wealth by their corruption. So this is what he's thinking, and Bollinger says, this is the result of occupation with others rather than with the Lord, when we keep our eyes on other people rather than on the Lord. He says, verse 14, For all day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. So, so for himself, he says, all day long I've been smitten as by disease. So he says, I purified myself and I kept my hands clean and there seems to be no reward for it. Said I seem to be struck by illness all the time. And certainly one who is ill, suffering from some long-standing or chronic illness, looks at those who abuse their bodies through wickedness and yet enjoy good health and think the same thing. I've tried to be righteous and here all day long I've been plagued and chastened or rebuked every morning. It's a, the wicked ought to be rebuked, but here I look like I'm the one who's getting rebuked at the end of the day. Bolger says this means continually. So this is the end of the third stanza of the psalm. Like I said, the first one considered the wicked who prosper. The second one considered its effect on them. They're puffed up with pride and arrogance. The third considers their effect on others who pay undue attention to how they're prospering. But then the fourth stanza is the turning point. Verse 15. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. So the psalmist has thought about these things. And he knows that there are others who have actually said these things. They've spoken this and said, being righteous doesn't do any good. It's better to be wicked, be like these people. But now he considers the result if he actually joins people who say such things and speaks them. And his heart recoils from it. So he says, what if I actually, I've been thinking this, what if I actually said it? He says, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. And offend here actually has to do with treachery. If I started talking like this, this would betray the generation of Yahweh's sons. Now here we have another case where obviously the word generation doesn't mean all those of approximately the same age living on earth at the same time. 
And we've taken our English word generation and specialized it till it almost always means that. But we forget that the word generation is related to a family of words, the generate family of words. And you can be generated by things other than your parents. And things other than people can be generated. We talk about generating power, generating, we have an advertisement campaign to generate excitement. Well, you can be generated by more than just your birth. This is speaking of those who are generated by their relationship with God. The generation of God's children. This happens, of course, after birth. That you're generated as one of God's. Of course, in the psalmist's case, he was speaking of God's people who were living in the land of Israel. But, of course, we too are happy if we have those generated by a relationship with God around us. You say that I need to not betray these others who are God's children around me. The generation of the Lord's children. Children here, though, is actually not the Hebrew for children. It is benim, which means sons. Ben, of course, meaning sons, and im being the plural in Hebrew. So he says, if I started to talk like this, that would betray the generation of the Lord's sons. So then he says, verse 16, When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. So when I thought to know this, so he was, again, he was thinking about this, he was pondering this, he's trying to, when he, he's trying to understand it, in other words. He, he knows it, he's seen it, now he's trying to understand it. He says, it was too painful for me. Probably be better put, it was vexation in my eyes, it bothered me, it troubled me. It was a problem, I couldn't understand it. But then he has verse 17, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. So when everything changes when he went into the sanctuary of God, and Rotherham points out that all his considerations led him to seek more light. And that's very good. When something is troubling us, we go to God to get his perspective on it. Now, of course, we don't have God's temple that we could go to God's temple. But we go to the Word of God to seek God's perspective on things. Now, the sanctuary here means the temple of God, so he goes into his presence. And here we have the theme of the third book of Psalms. Entering God's presence, he calls you in, and you enter the sanctuary. So here in God's presence, he finally receives the clarity that he didn't get when he was just considering the wicked. Because when I went into the sanctuary of God, he said, Then understood I their end. Understood there means considered. So he'd been considering the wicked and how prosperous they were. He was just considering them in a moment of time. Considering them as he saw them now. But when he went into God's sanctuary, then he took the longer view. And then he understood their end. Now end here is the Hebrew akarith. And it can mean end, it can also mean the reward or their resultant state. So he says, I had just considered their prosperity now, but then I, when I went to the sanctuary, I considered how they'll end up. I considered the outcome of all they've done. I considered beyond just the temporary circumstances of this life. 
So this ends the fourth stanza, wherein the psalmist recoils from the picture his considerations have formed up to now, and he seeks more light by entering God's sanctuary, and gets it when he brings the outcome of everything into his consideration. Verse 18, Surely thou didst set them in slippery places, thou castest them down into destruction. So surely God did set or will set them in slippery places. So he is now seeing, like I said, from the greater perspective. And he's looking at it not just from the myopic view of the current time, but he's looking at it from the longer view of their end. And he sees these wicked slippering, slipping down the slope where God is going to cast them down to destruction or to ruin. So this is their ultimate end. So if you take the long view, consider not just right now, consider not just their temporary success in this life, but when you put the full perspective on it. Well, then we see that unlike those who trust in the Lord, there is nothing that stands between these wicked and destruction. And they are inevitably moving in that direction. They are sliding down the slope toward the pit of destruction and perishing, and there's nothing standing in their way. Whereas the righteous, of course, are safe with God. These wicked are slipping down toward their final end. Verse 19, How are they brought into desolation is in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. So they're brought into desolation as in a moment. This is into waste. This word means waste, horror, astonishment, or an appalling situation. Like a destroyed city. Say it's appalling. So what can happen? Well, they're death. When God's people die, they die in hope. They die in expectation. They die looking forward to the life God has for them. But death, it can strike at any time. What happens when it strikes the wicked? Well, suddenly they went from prosperity and comfort and everything being good to being in an appalling situation. And they are utterly consumed with terrors or ended and finished with terrors. So there is no peace for these as they approach death because they see no hope beyond it. They approach the unknown without God. And what good is all their wealth and all their prosperity and all their seeming to get away with it as they approach their end? No, they're consumed with terror as they approach their end. Verse 20, As a dream when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. So he speaks of a dream when one awakes. Now when one is sleeping, of course, the dream seems real. But when one awakes, all that happened in the dream was nothing but an empty unreality. So it's the same thing for these. He says, so, O Lord. Now in your Bibles, Lord there is probably spelled capital L, small O-R-D. But this is one of the 134 times when the Sophrim amended the scripture and changed the original, which read Jehovah, 
into Adonai. But this should read Jehovah. He is speaking to Jehovah. Uh, I guess the Sophrim didn't like the idea of Jehovah waking up because they think Jehovah never sleeps. So the Sophrim thought they respected God more than he did, apparently. But, O Jehovah, when thou awakest, and of course in this case I think it means arouses yourself and goes into action. He hasn't literally been sleeping. Jehovah does not slumber or sleep, but he has stood by. And he has allowed them to act as they have. But when he goes into action, all that they're imagining that they're getting away with it and they're so prosperous and everything is so good with them. When God goes into action, all of a sudden that just dissolves like a dream. There was never any reality to it. So when God goes into action, thou shalt despise their image. Bolger thinks this is the image of which they dreamed. They were dreaming of themselves as so clever and wise and prosperous and everything was going good for them. But Rotherham thinks we should attach this word image to the fact that we were created in God's image. And yet these wicked who were created in God's image had taken God's image and distorted and corrupted it by their wickedness. So the image they bore, the image of God, which should have been an honor to them, they have so corrupted and twisted it by their wickedness that God despises it. Well, this ends the fifth stanza, which reveals the true picture of the wicked. Again, like I said, we were, we were kind of zoomed in when we saw the wicked in their little box of their life right at the moment where everything seems to be going good. But then as we zoom out and see that little box of their life is sliding down the hill into utter ruin, suddenly it doesn't look so good. So the true picture in the light of God's sanctuary, uh, that light casts the true picture into, into the, to the fore. So that ends the fifth stanza. Now we have a rapid succession of two-verse stanzas as the author considers based on his new perspective. So verse 21, Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. So he says, Thus my heart was grieved or embittered. So now that he has the proper perspective, he not only looks at the wicked, but now he looks back on himself. As he was looking at the wicked, and as he was thinking the thoughts he had thought about the wicked about how prosperous they were and what good does it do me to do righteous. So he looks back on how he had been before he detained his new perspective from entering the sanctuary. And he criticizes his former outlook as the foolishness it was. So his heart was grieved and he says, And I was pricked in my reins. In my inner being I was pricked. Why? He says, So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. So foolish there is brutish. I was like an unthinking animal. I was supposed to be a human, able to think, but I was like some animal who has no perspective on things. I was ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. An animal that doesn't can't reason or no logic. All the animal knows is what's going on right now. Doesn't see the 
animal doesn't see the whole course of their life, doesn't see I was young, now I'm middle-aged, I'm going to be old. Animal doesn't know that. So he says, I was like that. <laughs> I saw nothing but this little perspective of the wicked. I couldn't reason it out and see it now like I can in God's sanctuary. So that's that short sixth stanza, reevaluating the quote-unquote wisdom of his former perspective and seeing how foolish it was. Then verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast told in me by my right hand. So now he looks at himself and he sees that he is continually with God. And continually there is to mead. means perpetually or always. Now what an advantage that is, to be continually with God. And yet one of these wicked ever been with God, not once. Then he says, Thou hast holden me by my right hand. And this is why his former perspective was so foolish. Here he is, standing hand in hand with God, looking at those who have no connection with God whatsoever and envying them. How foolish is that? To envy those who have never held God's hand and never will. says, verse 24, Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. So afterward is there a car. It's related to the Akarith. So at the last, or at the result, at the end of my life, I'm not slipping down the slope into the pit of destruction. At the end of my life, he says, you will receive me to glory. So what's the wicked's result after death? Humiliation, destruction, perishing. But the righteous, it's reception into glory and resurrection. And before that, before God receives him to glory, he says, you will guide me with your counsel. So I've guided throughout life with your counsel. They have no counsel but their own foolish counsel that they think is so wise, but that's sliding them down the slope to destruction. But you are guiding me on the right path that leads me to glory in the end, after death, in the resurrection. Whereas they are leading to, their way is leading to shame and destruction. So here, the psalmist truly evaluates his state. And he sees how superior the situation he is in to that of the wicked. Imagine envying those who have never, who have no understanding even of what it's like to hold God's hand. And here he is holding God's hand and envying those who can't. And he sees them sliding down to destruction and himself heading to glory. Well, he sees how, how superior his own state really is to that of the wicked. And their little temporary glitz and glitter is nothing. So that's the seventh stanza, considering the true perspective on himself. Then to verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. Sellers makes this, Who is there for me in the heavens? And with thee I have no delight upon the earth. So whom have I in heaven but thee? Well, a lot of people think they know. Uh, they, they think my, my mother and my father are in heaven and my good friends and all of those who have passed on. And 
Well, really? Or they say, oh, I have a guardian angel up there who's watching out for me. Really, a guardian angel. Oh, and he says, as whom have I in heaven but thee? Well, really, God's the one we have in heaven. And he says, and there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. And who can compare to the Lord upon earth? So, what does he have? He has God in heaven and he has God on earth. And so desiring the deceptive, quote-unquote, advantages of the wicked is just empty and foolish. What could he really have on earth compared to having God? What would these few trinkets and this little fad of the wicked, the ability to temporarily fulfill their desires, satisfy their desires, what is that compared to having God? Verse 26, My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For Sellers makes that, When have failed my flesh and heart, the rock of my heart and my portion is the God of ages. So when I die, so he says, I have none in heaven or on earth but you, and, and when my flesh and my heart fail, that means cease or end. So this refers to his death, his flesh ends. His heart, his inner being ends, he dies. He sees his own death coming, but he sees the hope beyond it. But what about these wicked? What's death for them? It's ultimate calamity. It's the end of all they've gathered for themselves. It's the end of all satisfaction of their desires. It's the end of all advantage of their riches. It's the end of everything for them. When his flesh and his heart fails, he says, But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Strength there is the rock, like a protective cliff. And that protects even against death. As he said back in verse 18, the wicked are on the slippery slope. They're sliding down toward destruction with nothing between them and utter ruin. But here he sits in the rock, in the protective cliff. When death comes, he says, God is the rock of my heart and my portion forever. And that there is Olam this time for the outflow. God is my portion in the outflow. In this case, I believe it's the outflow of the kingdom. He has God throughout the kingdom. Where that is his hope. That is his future. Living forever with God. Living throughout the kingdom with God. So this ends again the short eighth stanza, which speaks of the ultimate value of God next to all else in heaven and earth. And extending, of course, most of all to his value beyond death. Verse 27, For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go whoring from thee. So now in this final stanza we have put side by side for the final conclusion the fate of these wicked and the fate of God's people. He says, For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Far there is actually those who are departing from thee. Those who are, are leaving you, turning away from you. Now for the Israelite, of course, they were departing from God because as born as Israelites, they were born in relationship with God. And then they would depart from him. For us, of course, we are not born in relationship with God. We only come into one through faith. 
But the sad conclusion for the wicked is they're going to perish. Hebrew there is abad, which has to do with perishing or destruction. And this is ultimately the biblical doctrine of future punishment, is that it's death or final perishing after one's last day in court. He says, For thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. Destroyed there is a synonym for abad, meaning exterminated or destroyed. So you've exterminated or destroyed all those that go a-whoring. Now, spoken from the Israelites' perspective, every Israelite was supposed to be in relationship with God. He was their God. He had purchased them for himself. They were in a relationship like a marriage relationship with him. So when they would seek other gods, they were whoring away from God, or these wicked just sought their own pleasure, their own prosperity. So he says, you have destroyed all those who go whoring from thee. And when God's kingdom comes, we won't have all this multiplicity of religions. In God's kingdom, you won't have the Hindu religion and the Buddhist religion and the Muslim religion and on and on, Taoist and on ending these, all these religions with all these different gods. No, there will be no alternative religion. There will be no one who worships or seeks any other god. All, all, these, all these who follow these ways and all, all these ways will have been destroyed. Then he says, verse 28, But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God, that I may declare all thy works. He said, but it is good for me to draw near to God. And that means to approach God. And again, remember, this is the theme of the Leviticus book. God's call to approach him and the response of his people by approaching. And notice here in this psalm, it was approaching God in his sanctuary that gave the psalmist the true perspective on his dilemma. Is he came to God and then he saw the long view. Then he saw where he was headed as opposed to where these wicked were headed. So it is good for me to draw near to God, to come into his presence. He says, I have put my trust in the Lord God. Or that means I've made him my refuge. And again, these wicked who are sliding down the slippery slope into destruction, they have no refuge. But he has made his refuge the Lord God. Lord God, there is Adonai Yahweh, or Adonai Jehovah. So the master Jehovah, I've put my trust in him. He says that I may declare all thy works. So he is declaring his works not just now, but of course in the future he'll be able to, in resurrection he'll be able to declare his works as well because they'll belong to him then. So this psalm ends and there's no postscript or dedication of the chief musician or anything. But this is an important psalm and Seller says of this, it could be that time and time again we might doubt the wisdom of serving God and being faithful to him. Why not compromise here or there? temporize here or there and gain the favor of this person or keep the favor of that person. Keep people on our side and pay no attention to God's leading. Just watch out for your following and have them exalting your name. But when we get back to the book and learn that people have chosen the way of truth and the only thing that makes any difference to them is, is it the truth? When we come to this sanctuary of the word of God, we choose to follow his steps. So I agree, we come to God's word, and from that sanctuary we see the same thing the psalmist saw. 
that these wicked who seem so prosperous are sliding down the slope into destruction and we get to hold God's hand and watch them go and in our end we have the the rock the strong cliff the Lord and we have our hope of future glory with him whereas these wicked have nothing so there's the true perspective that the psalmist Asaph sees on the wicked and the righteous and it's a good lesson for all of us to remember. Well, the next psalm is also kind of a dilemma. I have a couple of dilemma psalms here in a row. Apparently an Asaph theme, but it's a long one. We definitely don't have time to deal with it 